I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. In his new novel, Brendan Slocum has tucked a mystery inside an opera and an opera inside a plot that asks some big questions. Whose music gets heard and honored? Who claims the ownership and rewards of that music? And who gets to tell the story of how that music came to be? Brendan writes in his author's note, brilliant songs and extraordinary books or poems or paintings or speeches, will you name it, have been lost, thrown away, burned or ignored. His new novel is titled Symphony of Secrets, and he joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I'm happy to say that along with our conversation, we're going to listen to some music together again because we did it last time and I loved it. So there's a lot to talk about. (laughs) Fantastic. I'm going to begin with this composer that you were introduced to in college. And um, I'd say this composer ignited your awareness of how the work of creators can be marginalized or obscured. So I thought we'd listen to some music and then we'll talk a bit about how you discovered this composer. Let's listen. That's the Dallas Symphony performing William Grant Stills Symphony Number no. 1. So, Brendan, how were you introduced to William Grant Still, and why don't most of us recognize his name, do you think? You know, that is a fantastic question, and I've got to thank my violin teacher in college, Dr. Rochelle Vetter Huang, for introducing me to William Grant Still. Um, one day, I just finished uh, performing a piece and, you know, it was time for some new literature. And she said, Brendan, I would like for you to play the suite for violin and piano by William Grant still, you know, I thought nothing of it. I was like, okay, some British composer. Sure. (laughs) Uh, Never heard of the guy. And uh, I got the music, which was, it was odd getting the music because um, all of his copywritten works are owned by his family. So she had to, my teacher had to write to his granddaughter to get a copy of the music in South Carolina. And I'm just thinking, what is going on? What is this piece about? Um, And then when she, my teacher actually gave me a recording, you know, back, back then in the uh, early nineties, it was uh, cassette tapes that we got. And uh, she gave me a cassette recording of uh, her and her husband playing the suite for violin and piano, and I'd never heard anything like it. And I needed to know everything I could about this guy. And it was just, it was, it was mind boggling to me that I'd never heard of him. So how unusual is that, that the family would own the copyright to the music? I don't think it is too uncommon, uh, especially because, you know, William Grant still is a 20th century composer and, you know, with, with copyright uh, laws and everything, they, it's, they, they were actually pretty smart to, to keep ownership of all of um, his music. So still graduated from Oberlin Conservatory. He wrote operas, music for radio and TV shows in Hollywood. I mean, he should be well known why isn't he? Why, did, why wasn't he familiar to you? 
He's an African-American composer. Mm-hmm. But most of us don't know his name and why. I, I agree 100%. You know, I, I am an old TV buff and I, I like the show Perry Mason and I will watch an episode of Perry Mason every night. And one day I'm watching an episode and I'm like, wow, that sounds like <laughs> William Grant still. That sounds like his music. <laughs> really? And sure enough, you know, I did more research. He'd written stuff for Perry Mason. Why? You're, and to answer your question, why his name is not more well known, that is a not only a mystery, but it's also a tragedy. This guy is one of the most talented composers that America has ever produced. And, you know, he's hardly known. It, it is, it's, a, it's a travesty. Yeah. You know, what, what you're describing with Still and what you delve into in the plot of the new novel is more than cultural appropriation. I want to talk about that as well. But mm-hmm. I, I also want to talk about what seems like deliberate erasure and, and, mm-hmm. and the influences that end up um, erasing somebody's work and their contribution from history and lifting other people's work and their contributions mm-hmm. to history. I, you know, I, I, I'd like to understand a little bit about how that happens in classical or contemporary music. What's your sense of that? Well, you know, by no means am I an expert, but, you know, things that I have done and things that I have seen, it's, you know, it's a fine line. There's a really, really fine line between borrowing and just flat out stealing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as as a musician, we are constantly uh, looking for inspiration, different places. You know, um, I'm in a band and my guitarist you know, he plays a lick. It's like, wow, that sounds like, you know, X, Y, Z. He's like, yeah, I didn't steal it. I'm just borrowing it. It was great. It was great (laughs) stuff. So I'm going to put it out there. I will totally give him credit for it, but you know, it's a great lick. So I want to use it. But you know, in, in compositions, people would steal slash borrow other musicians music all the time. And it was, it was seen as flattering, but then it kind of got to the point where it was like, okay, I'm just going to take this for myself because there's nothing that you can do about it. And, you know, it, it's basically stealing a voice and wiping out a voice. And, you know, people do it for so many different reasons. You know, some people are desperate. Some people are just, you know, mean spirited. Who knows? Who knows why people do what they do? But um, yeah, it's it's a real thing. And it really does happen. And it's happened for centuries. So so what is the difference? And again, you're exploring this in the novel, and we'll explain how. But what is the difference in, let's say, our contemporary music between stealing and borrowing? I mean, is it attribution? Is it publicly saying, um, you know, we wrote these songs in honor of the work that X uh, musician did? I mean, how do we define that? Where's the line, do you think? I think that is the million dollar question. I think it's a combination of both um, acknowledgement and, you know, just this flat out stealing. It's like, you know, I would like, like to, you know, this is a node, this is a nod to Beethoven, or this is a nod to Gershwin, or this is a nod to Mozart. You know, when composers do that, it's, it's, it's wonderful because it's a mutual sign of respect. But when you just, you know, steal a lick from a musician and just claim it as your own, it's, I mean, you know, well, some people probably think, yeah, they'll never know, you know, this is, it's, it's just uh, 10 measures. No one will ever know the difference and I can get away with this. And 
unfortunately, there are cases where this is just flagrant and the, the true composer will never get the credit that they have uh, so earned. And it's, it's, that's really what I wanted to explore in this mm-hmm. novel, Symphony of Secrets. Yeah. So, Brendan, don't you think that when something is taken from another composer, the, the person that's taking it, stealing, borrowing, you know, if that composer, let's say Gershwin, since you mentioned him, you know, nobody would, I would think, would ever think not to acknowledge uh, having taken something from Gershwin. I wonder if the field is more open when the person that wrote the original music is not perceived to have power in our culture. And that was the case for a lot of musicians and composers of color, right? Absolutely. You know, it was a very, very, very different time. Um, you know, in, in past centuries, it's, we've come a long, long, long way in terms of, you know, copyright laws and, and things of that nature. But, um, in terms of, of theft of mm-hmm. intellectual property, such as music, you know, there was a time when it was, you know, if it's not done by a white person, then it's not legitimate. And you, you, you hit it right on the head. You know, you have no power. And, you know, since we, Gershwin was mentioned, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's becoming more and more well known that, you know, when George Gershwin wrote Porgy and Bess, those melodies that we all know so well to this day, you know, they didn't just come out of thin air. Gershwin would go to Harlem nightly and sit in the clubs where black people were singing and playing this music. And, you know, Gershwin being as wonderful a musician as he is, he would, you know, take these things that he'd heard and, and write them down, you know, whereas the, the musicians that were playing them in the clubs, you know, they didn't need to write them down. They would just, you know, this is tunes that they learned and that they had written and they knew. Uh, And, and, and Gershwin was, he was, um, he was pretty bad about doing that, especially, Mm. Uh, in Porgy and Bess. And uh, in my research with William Grant Still, I, I, yeah, I learned a lot about uh, appropriation. It was pretty uh, eye-opening. You wonder what a difference, I, I didn't know that about Gershwin. Um, you wonder what a difference it might have made in that, in the day, if Gershwin, as, as lauded and admired as he was, would have made a point to say where he'd heard you know, the inspiration for it or which, mm-hmm. which group of musicians had been important in the, in the construction of something like Porgy and Bess, right? Could have made all the difference Absolutely. to their lives too. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, unfortunately, we may never know. We may never know what was going on with Gershwin at the time that, you know, he decided to do this. Was was he desperate? Was he just not thinking, ah, this isn't important? Or, you know, musicians of color just did not have a voice. They just did not have a voice at that time. And that's just how it was. You know, we may never know. But uh, fortunately, because of, you know, modern technology, we can now delve into uh, things like where did this lick come from? You know, what is the what is this based on? Where are the roots of this particular piece of music? Now we can get more into that. So things like this don't happen again. And the copyright laws and everything, you know, it's 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 an amazing thing that uh, people finally came to their senses and said, you know, we got to stop this. I'm going to come back to that modern technology because you write about that uh, in the novel. But one more bit on this. Um, I was trying to think of a more 
modern example where appropriation has happened and it's meant a lot to one band and it's been kind of crushing to another group. And here's an example. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a black group called the Valentinos with a song written by black musicians Bobby and Shirley Womack. This song was re-recorded by the Rolling Stones and they had their first number one hit in America with it. So we're going to hear the Valentinos first, and then we're going to hear the Rolling Stones version. Let's listen. Okay, so, Brenda, we heard the Valentinos there, again, written by uh, Bobby and Shirley Womack. And then the Stones came in and recorded it, and it was a huge hit for them. And they did credit the black artists that they were inspired by or that they covered. But music scholars today have argued that the Stones reaped these great profits, and very few people really know about the originators of the music. I wonder what kind of an example... Uh, you think that is of this, of what we're talking about? I think that is more of a, it's, it's, it's a subtle example, you know, because the Rolling Stones did give credit. Um, you know, I, I think it all depends on, on personal taste as well. You know, I think both versions of, of the song are, are fantastic. Um, but it's just a, a matter of, you know, black musicians at the time, you know, when, when the Rolling Stones were, were at their heyday, you know, when they had this number one hit, you know, black musicians were still seen, I think, as, as kind of a novelty. Right. And it was right. a very niche thing. And it's like, well, you know, that that's black music. So, you know, they've had their own type of thing. And then this is the real music here. Um, right. And I, I think right. that attitude is, is pretty much what um, what solidified the Rolling Stones into being able to produce a number one hit off of a song, you know, that was great already. But, um, you know, again, it's personal preference. Yeah, I mean, apparently, just in reading about this, apparently the Womacks who wrote it didn't want the Stones to record it because they were afraid it was going to obscure the Valentino's version. But as you say, it's a subtle example, and yet music is really rife with this. I mean, you can find Mm -hmm. all kinds of that blatant appropriation, borrowing, uh, you know, some acknowledgement, but then seeing a a white band end up really making a hit out of it. And as you've said, that's perceived to be 
the standard of the music, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's all I can say is we've come a long, long way. And I, I just found it really, really interesting to explore these things because, but, you know, the younger generation, they will hear a song and they think, oh, that's by, you know, XYZ. And that just came out a day ago. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, what are you talking about? That song is like 50 years old. And I remember hearing that when I was a kid. And you have no idea. You have no idea. And, you know, the, the proper credit will will probably never be given. And you know, I just think it's so important for people to receive credit and acknowledgement for the work that they did. Yeah. Um, I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Brendan Slocum about his new novel, Symphony of Secrets. As noted in the introduction, um, he's writing a story that unfolds and asks a lot of big questions about who can claim ownership, and then the rewards and the profits that come from music, whose music gets heard and honored, whose music gets stolen or borrowed, who gets to tell the story of how that music came to be. The new novel is titled Symphony of Secrets. Okay, Brendan, let, let's talk about how you tackle all of this in your plot. We meet uh, Dr. Bern Hendricks. He's the one of the main characters. He's a music scholar in the present day, and he has been invited and hired with analyzing a newly discovered opera by a famous composer, somebody that he deeply admires. And so then the mystery begins to unfold. Tell me what else I need to understand about the plot, because it's complicated. Oh, <laughs> wow, the way you described that, it just gave me chills. I'm like, oh, I'm so excited to read this. I, I'd almost forgot Your own I'd written novel. That. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's been a while since I've I've read it. Uh and um, you know, there there's just so much to to tackle in this in this book. You know, there's there's uh we're 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 talking about the Delaney Foundation, who runs the organization that the composer Frederick Delaney um, it started a million years ago when, when he was, uh, a young composer. Um, and we talk about, you know, not only appropriation, but what do you do when you discover something like this? Do you keep it to yourself? Do you, you know, shout it to the world? Is it going to hurt people? Is it going to help people? There are a lot of moral decisions people have to make, you know, with these discoveries that take place in this novel. Um, you know, that, that takes place in the present. And in the past, you have the young composer, Frederick Delaney, who meets um, our heroine, Josephine Reed. Uh, and, you know, is he helping her or is he hurting her? Is he doing it for the right reasons? Is he doing a bad thing for the right reasons? It, there's so many moral issues in this book. Um, I, I love it. I just absolutely love it. So then, so we should talk about the, the novel moves back and forth in time. And mm -hmm. uh, when Delaney uh, is writing, first he's trying to sell music. That was, that was a very interesting mm -hmm. part of the novel, too, about how people would go out and promote songs. But he meets mm -hmm. Josephine Reed and he recognizes pretty quickly that she's she, she's a genius level kind of composer, but she's unorthodox. How would you describe her? Unorthodox. I think that's a really good description. Um, she is kind of in her own world. 
uh, I purposefully uh, wanted to make Josephine neurodivergent. She's mm-hmm. living with autism. And I, I wanted to do that because I, as a teacher, have had uh, students who have been living with autism. My nephew lives with autism. My best friend's uh, brother has autism. And, you know, one of my closest friends that I play with in a symphony, her son lives with autism. So I'm, I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experience uh, dealing with people who uh, live with autism. And, you know, I, I wanted to kind of dispel a myth and that, you know, people who are neurodivergent are un able to do things or they're incapable. I wanted to dispel that myth. Um, some of my best students, my best players, you know, we're, we're living with autism and, and they can do anything that anyone else can do. They just need the right tools. And um, with Josephine, you know, Freddie recognizes that she really is a genius and she does things her own way. And it, it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing that he sees and there may be a hint of jealousy there, or it's just fascination. You have to make that decision for yourself. Yeah, I mean, this is, you kind of move back and forth over this line of he he knows that she's on a different plane of, mm-hmm. of uh, music composition, I guess, than he is. But he the way he rationalizes that, I guess, would be is... Um, no one would ever hear her music but for my presence in her life. And I would submit that the line of his rationalization keeps moving. Do you think that's fair to say? I think that is absolutely fair to say. And and like I mentioned with the, you know, the morality issues, it's, you know, is Freddie doing this for the right reasons? It's kind of a, a scummy thing that he's doing, but... <laughs> I think his intentions are, (laughs) you know, his intentions are really good towards Josephine, at least in his own mind. He's, he's doing her a favor in his own mind. He's really trying to help her and, you know, he's reaping some of the benefits at the same time. So is it really a bad thing that he's involved in? So when you talk about the tools, let's come back for a moment to autism and music. When you talk about the tools that Um, that a student might need in one of your music classes. Uh, What what are we talking about? Because I think what you're writing to here and what you're saying is trying to understand the way a person living with autism sees and feels and experiences music is going to be different. So how how do you try to get inside that experience to teach? Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that. Um, Each person is different. You know, people living with autism, they, they, they see things and process things differently. It's just a matter of processing. Um, for one of my students in particular, I, I'll never forget him. He's the nicest kid in the world. His name is Min. He would always, I, he would, he would look at me, stare at me so intently as I was explaining something. And then he would ask me to demonstrate and I would, I would play what it is that I wanted them to do. And that was all he needed. Hmm. Um, whereas, you know, my other students, okay, we need to do this. We need to do this here. Let me hear you do, you know, tons of examples. And, uh, men just needed that one. He would always be just, just hyper-focused on what it was that I was saying. And he would watch everything. I'm talking from the way my bow hit the string to, you know, the fingerings that I use that that's what he needed. Whereas another one of my students, Eric, 
Um, you know, he was just happy to be, to be playing, you know, and he would play something. If there was a rhythm wrong or a note wrong, I would just correct him and immediately he got it. So each, each person was different and you just have to, um, and this is one of my philosophies. You take every student where they are, mm-hmm. you, you find out where they are and then you take them further. There's, there's never been a one size fits all approach to, to teaching as far as I'm concerned. And with students who live with autism, it's the exact same thing. You just need to find out what it is that it's going to take for them to, to, to be on the same page with, with everyone else. One of the, one of the characteristics that you've given Josephine in the novel is she also sees color and associates that with music. Mm-hmm. I've read about this, but you really take us inside what this is like. How did you understand that so well? What what kind of reading were you doing on this? You know, I I am a a, a music lover. I love Russian music, and one of my favorite oh. composers, one of the big five, is Rimsky-Korsakov. And before I did a lot of reading about Rimsky-Korsakov, you know, I would always say to myself, all of his music is just, it's, it's everywhere. It's all over the place. Every instrument is used, you know, to the, it's just used beautifully. You know, his orchestrations are incredible. And in everything that he's written, the first piece that I played by him was the uh, Russian Easter Overture. And uh, as I'm playing his music, I'm like, wow, this stuff is great. How does he do this? And, and reading, you know, not only did he have synesthesia, um, I, I, when I was reading about what that is, wow, color. So you could hear an F sharp and say, oh, that's yellow. Whoa. Okay, that is just the blending of two senses that I would never even imagine. I thought I did some far out stuff when I, you know, compare music to uh, other things, but not, whoa, yellow for an F sharp? That is amazing. Um, and so the more I read, the more fascinated I was by, by this condition. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to know if it was a detriment at some point. Some people do view it as a detriment because you can't go anywhere, listen to anything without getting like bombarded with, with colors and sounds and numbers and everything. And it's, it's, it's too much for a lot of people. Um, so it was fascinating to me. And I really wanted to explore that, uh, that avenue that not a lot of people know about. So what do you hear and see in that music? Whoa. Ah, oh my goodness. What do I hear and see in the Russian Easter Overture? I hear and see, I see huge bells. I see a ton of people. I see snow. I see people going to church. I see people celebrating. Um, I see a huge choir full of big Russian baritones and basses singing these liturgical uh, hymns from from Russian liturgy. And it's just, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing sight and, and, and sound. I, I can actually see these things every time I hear or play this piece of music. It's wonderful. But you don't see color. I mean, the way the composer I does, right? I never see color. I don't, I don't. And I can only imagine how, I think it would probably be overwhelming for me if I actually saw colors as this was going on, Why? you know, hearing these just, um, because for me with, with this piece of music, it's such a powerful piece, not only to play, but to listen to. And, and that's, that's huge. That's a sensory overload in itself in a good way. 
But then to add the aspect of color to that, I just don't know that I'd be able to handle it. It might be too much. So how common is that? You called it synesthesia. Is that it? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How common is it, do you think? Uh, it's not very common at all. Um, I don't actually know the uh, percentage of people who are born with this condition. But, uh, I mean, there there are lots of people in the United States who, who do have it. And, you know, they, they make use of it and they excel because of it. And there are other people, you know, like I mentioned, it's just, you know, it gets to the point where it's like, I can't take any more green. I can't take any more purple. This this red is just pounding. My, I can't take it anymore. Um, so it, it's kind of a hit and miss. So so I think that brings us back to Frederick Delaney and Josephine Reed, the characters that are are back in time. They're in the 1920s in New York. Is that right? Yes. 1920s. Yes, 1920s jazz age New York. Right. So so Delaney in under starting to understand how Josephine Reed sees these colors. I mean, he one of the things he's doing for her is kind of translating these experiences that she's had. And and as you were describing, for some people, this is really overwhelming. I thought of her character because there's times that she has a hard time explaining what she's feeling and seeing and hearing. Yes. And he plays a pretty important role in doing that, doesn't he? Absolutely. Um, one thing that I, I learned about, uh, you know, dealing with people with autism is, is a trust factor. Um, you, there, there are routines and you've got to earn trust. And Josephine began to trust Freddie. You know, she trusted him to uh, understand what it was that she was dealing with. And, and I think in, in all of his misguided attempts to, to help Josephine, he, uh, really did understand her. And, you know, he was doing his best in the beginning. He absolutely did his best to to make things um, easier for Josephine. You know, the music that she wanted to hear. He took the time to learn her process. He learned what it was that she was seeing and she was feeling. Maybe not to the extent that she did, but, you know, he learned enough to be able to communicate with her, to be able to put on the page so that she can actually hear what it is that she wanted to hear that she was just hearing in her head. And now, now it's out there in the world, you know, and, and that was a gift from Freddie to right. her. So, you know, was he a bad guy? Uh. <laughs> well, I mean, you're also asking, he becomes quite famous and he mm-hmm. becomes, I think I can say less interested that in acknowledging Josephine's contribution to that. Although the, the reason that he gives her, she's a African-American woman, um, so a, a lot of strikes against her in jazz age New York in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And so he's bringing her Absolutely. music in because he can. But I think you're also asking about what happens when fame, you know, turns someone's head or fame plays a corruptive um, role in someone's life. Is that right? Were you, were you thinking about that? Yes, absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it's a very, very, very fine line that you have to walk. And, you know, was the fame that Freddie was receiving as a result of the, the work that he was doing with Josephine, you know, did it go to his head? Did it corrupt him? You know, in, in, in Freddie's eyes, he was doing everything right for the right reasons. And, you know, 
this this fame that that crept up on him it just kind of overtook him and I think it's a common thing. You know, we, we often see people, you know, we, we think that they're one way in real life. And, you know, it's where, where the saying comes, you know, don't, you shouldn't really meet your idols because they might be a huge disappointment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a real thing. I've actually met people and I know people who have done things and, you know, they were one way in the beginning and now they're just, wow, you can't even fit in the same room because their head <laughs> is so big because of, you know, the success that they've garnered. And, you know, it's also, it's a cautionary tale. It really is. And I am hoping, it's a reminder for me, I'm hoping, you know, that if, if people recognize me or they read my work and they like it, I never want to become a Freddie Delaney ever. And I tell my friends, if my head gets any bigger than it already <laughs> is, you tell me about it and you stop it right then. Well, okay. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, you, you got a lot of praise and uh, a lot of people loved your work in The Violin Conspiracy, the first novel. Um, you know, do you, do you sense yourself tipping over sometimes into this sense of, uh, I don't know, ego and exhilaration and you have to pull yourself back? I mean, have you, have you experienced that? I am going to say absolutely 100% <laughs> no, that no. has not happened to me. No, <laughs> okay. no, 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 no. See, I, I think, and, and I would always joke with, with my close friends and my bandmates and everything, you know, we would, we would joke with each other. If one of us becomes, you know, rich and famous and, and we have a lot of success, we're always going to be there to keep each other grounded. And I, I talked to my, my best friend from college. We've been friends since we were 19 years old. You know, I talk to him all the time and it's just like, you know, how are you doing? How are things going? He's like, yeah, you know, this and this and this and this. And he's like, you know, he, he, he gives me good advice. He said, you know, stay humble, stay humble, stay humble. And I'm like, absolutely 100%. And I think because you know, I, I was a high school teacher for so many years before I had a career before my writing mm, started. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I've been grounded for decades. So I, I don't see anything different happening. The only thing, you know, that's, that's really happening that's different with me right now is I got a new pair of shoes. That's, that's pretty much it. That's the extent of it. <laughs> oh, come on. That's it? <laughs> that's, that's it. Bought new well, shoes? I bought a couple of, I, maybe I bought a few action figures, maybe that, <laughs> other than that. No, that, action, that's all. <laughs> wait a minute. Action figures of famous old composers or new composers? <laughs> Who? I'm more like comic book heroes. Oh. I've been a comic book and action figure collector for years. Oh. And, you know, I, I may have bought a few more the ones that I had my eye on. But other than that, you know, I'm I'm still just the same old Brendan. Where where are all these action figures displayed? Where's the collection? Oh, it is in my office. I have my premium ones on a bookshelf and my soon to be displayed ones are all packed away in a closet that I cannot wait <laughs> to take out and just have them, you know, strewn all over the place. But not the right setting for that yet. I haven't quite got it set up yet. <laughs> uh, that action figure lover that you're listening to is Brendan Slocum. Uh, his, his first novel was The Violin Conspiracy, highly recommended by a number of people, including me, who love books. And his new novel uh, is called Symphony of Secrets. And we're talking about some of the questions that he asks in the novel and some of the twists and turns in the plot. Okay. So, Brendan, I want to come back to this because, again, 
we're we're in uh, the twenties in New York, and we're also in present day with Dr. Bern Hendricks, who who has come in at the invitation of this Delaney Foundation to analyze what they say is a newly discovered opera of Delaney's, one that has been anticipated for many, many decades. Here's the thing I thought was so interesting. I had no idea uh, that music analysis could be so absorbing. Your Your descriptions of this are just fascinating. I mean, he's annotating, he's researching, he's cross-checking. Tell me about this analysis. I didn't know it was it was done in the kind of detail that Dr. Hendricks is doing it in. Why do people do this? Um, it is mainly for it's it's primarily for authentication. Okay. Just to, I mean, if you're going to to take the time to to authenticate a work, you know, you really want to make sure. Let's say if if you found a manuscript by Bach, you would go back and look at you know Bach's you know proven. This is by written by Bach. You would make every single comparison because if there's the slightest, slightest discrepancy, you know, it could be discredited. So you really have to make sure that everything 100% is accurate. And I, you know, I learned a ton about annotations um, from Doc. My, it's funny. My 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 violin teacher, Doctor Rochelle Vetter Huang, her husband, Doctor Howard Huang, he sent me a ton of research on different annotations that you know composers would use, and huh. just it's it's out of this world. The stuff that you see, how people can can translate well, these like things, what? like all tell, kinds of tell me a little bit about that symbols and squiggles and shapes and numbers and lines and triangles and stars and U's and circle everything you name it it can be an annotation and it makes perfect sense to the composer if there is let's say a half note tied to a quarter note you know and and you want it played a certain way a composer would write a squiggle you know like like three lines and that would mean to play it a certain way and it makes perfect sense to that composer. Whereas to another composer, if they had the same thing written down, they would just draw an arrow and it would make sense. Hmm. And the way that these composers do these things, it is absolutely fascinating. So it, it's really not unlike authenticating a painting where you're looking for what the, the tricks and the techniques and the, as you're saying, the symbology that a painter might use, I mean, th that's going to have a certain kind of recognition or familiarity to it. Is mm -hmm. that right? Right. That is absolutely correct. And it's, it's, everyone is different. Everyone is different. Every piece is different. Every, you know, composer has their own way of, of doing things. Uh, so when you're doing uh, an authentication, I mean, you, you really have to look very, very closely at every single annotation that's done everything you can't let anything slide i was curious about how many hidden or lost compositions you think there might be in let's say household name kind of composers i mean how how unusual would it be that maybe a bach or a mozart would write a composition and then for whatever reason it would get lost to history and might be discovered Does, and then it would need to go through this authentication process i mean how common is that mm -hmm. 
Um, I, I think it's more common than, than people realize. You know, I, I believe it was, I want to say, in the early 2000s, maybe. I'm probably wrong in my date, but there was a piece by Mozart that was actually discovered in a previously un, unheard of piece. Really? Um, and it went through the authentication process, and, and it was discovered and determined, yeah, this is legitimate Mozart. This is actually by him. Um, I'm not sure who the people were that that did the uh, comparisons, but uh, yeah, um, there there's probably tons and tons and tons of music. You know, there there's probably pieces in people's homes right now in attics and basements that you know, have never seen the light of day since they were written, just because people don't know what they have, and wow. you know that that's something that's actually explored as well in the book. Yeah, um, it, you know, it occurred to me that you created a kind of second language for the novel because Josephine Reed has these annotations or doodles as they're known in the, in the book and they mm-hmm. are ornate and elaborate. And you, I mean, it's almost like you created a, a code um, that you gave to Josephine Reed that is then a key part of how the contemporary music analysts have to, have to kind of crack that code. I mean, what an undertaking. Mm-hmm. How'd you think of it? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, you know, believe it or not, uh, it, it's, it's not, it wasn't that difficult to do just because of what I'd known of composers using annotations. And, and when I got the information from, from Dr. Huang, you know, it's like, wow, I had no idea it was this elaborate. You know, I, he, he sent me copies of pages of composers' work that were nothing. But if you looked at it, you would think that it was just scribbles. But <laughs> really, to the composer, it is a legitimate piece of music that everyone has probably heard. And I thought that was wow. fascinating. And, and in the case of Josephine, you know, with her being so in tune with nature and, and sounds and music and everything, anything I thought could be uh, utilized as as an annotation or a doodle in this work. So that was actually quite fun to do. And I took a couple of different directions. I was going to, I think it's okay to give this away. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to uh, originally have uh, pictures of her doodles, you know, mm-hmm. in people's homes I because they were that. so beautifully drawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to do that. I was like, you know, this, it might be a bit more fun to, you know, keep it kind of uh, under wraps for, for a little bit longer. And yeah, I decided not to go in that direction. You mentioned it, it towards the beginning of our conversation about music technology that now helps, mm-hmm. you know, scholars like Dr. Hendricks and the novel do this. So how has the technology advanced? Technology is, you know, it's, it's, I always call technology a blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the greatest things, you know, and, and man has ever, ever come up with. Um, and it is such a useful tool in being able to uh, verify anything really quickly. But at the same time, you know, things can get to the point where it's, and, and this is also explored in the book, where it's too good. Um, for example, uh, there, there's a section in the book where uh, one, Burns' assistant, Ebony, wants to see the actual uh, pages. And it said, well, we have scans. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I need to see it for myself because a scan will pick up things that the human eye cannot. 
And I need to see this with my own eyes so that, you know, the technology is great, but I just need old fashioned eyeballs on this page. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it's, 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 it's fun. It's a, it's a fun thing to do. And, you know, it, it can go in so many different directions with the technology and, and it's great for some things, but, you know, it could be too good at some times. Okay. I'm going to ask you to read an excerpt from the novel. And this is where, um, Freddie Delaney is really starting to dig in with Josephine about her process, the, the composition, the color, the, the music that she hears. And I think we get a little glimpse into uh, Josephine's mind here. And as we've said, I mean, Freddie truly wants to understand this. So he is probing with some questions. So mm-hmm. go ahead, Brendan, if you will. Absolutely. You really write down what you hear? Yes. Dr. Moore said, this is how I can process everything around me. How do you know what to write? It makes sense. Josephine kept drawing, the ciphers expanding across the page. And it's the same for music? You write the music down too? Music you hear? Of course, she said. Where? She rooted around in her heap of paper and handed him another page, also labeled with J-O-R. This is what they played a couple of weeks ago at the Black Cat. See? Here are the trombones doing an evolving bass line, and here are the clarinets with an ascending melody. These are the three trumpet parts. The wall is constantly in motion. Oh, the cymbals danced in a bewildering mass, a barrier of intricate patterns repeating and modifying and repeating again, a barrage of sound made visible. He glimpsed what everyday life was like for her. It looks like you have a different symbol for each instrument or sound, right? Yes. Sometimes the multiple sounds take longer to write down, but I can remember it. I see. What's this? He pointed to a triangle with three lines slashing through it. That's a flute. The lines right here show that. When it's like this, the line is soaring. When it's like this, it descends. And this is sparrows outside fighting. This is a jackhammer. This is footsteps going upstairs. Here's the creak in the staircase. On and on she went, showing him how... She absorbed the world. Wow, Freddie said, lost. She showed him how her placement of each symbol potentially corresponded with musical notation. Josephine set the paper with triangles on the piano and began to play, and after a few measures, he recognized the tune. The piano fell silent. Josephine was staring down at her fingers, resting on the keys. Freddie, she said. Yes? Do you really think I'm crazy? Hey, he said. He touched one of Josephine's hands, immediately drew away. I think you're a lot of things, Josephine Reed. Crazy is certainly not one of them. Brendan Slocum reading from his new novel, Symphony of Secrets. It is fun to hear you read out loud. When you're you're writing, are you you reading it aloud? Are you kind of stalking around the office uh, as you're coming up with the dialogue? How do you do it? (laughs) You know, I actually, after I, I... I hear everything. When I write, I like to pretend that I'm watching a movie. Ah. Um, and, and each, each, you know, character has a specific voice and, um, I make it a point to read aloud after I've done a chapter. I always read it aloud just mm-hmm. to see what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the, the timing and the voices and the pacing and everything, it, it really helps when I hear it, uh, read out loud. And it's very specific in my head, you know, like Josephine's voice to me, you know, having, uh, been in contact with a lot of people who live with autism. I, I, I wanted to give her a very, very staccato short speech. Mm-hmm. You know, when she speaks, everything is kind of like this when she talks. And, 
you know, that that's just how I hear Josephine. So I really wanted to portray that on the page. You know, the other thing I, I, that occurred to me is when I listen to music and I have, you know, I know what I like, but I have an unsophisticated, let's say an uneducated ear for it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't think I know that I'm hearing not just a composition, but I'm also hearing the world around that composer. And your book introduced me to the idea, as Josephine is saying, it's the jackhammer, it's the birds, it's the rhythm of footsteps. It occurred to me that you probably do hear that, or, or you can spot that in contemporary or classical <laughs> music. Is that right? You know, uh, yes, yes. And, and, and I, I was so funny. I was talking to a friend uh, just the other day, and I say that being a musician sometimes is a blessing as well as a curse. Uh, I, I live in Washington, D.C., and I hear horns and sirens all the time. And a horn will blow. It's like, oh, that's a C sharp and an E flat. <laughs> oh, what wow. are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's that's two different tones there. I hear it all the time. You know, the doorbell will ring, and I'll, I'll, I'll immediately analyze what the tones are. And, you know, I, I do that a lot and I don't realize that I'm doing it. And sometimes people think I'm out of my mind, but that's just how my, my brain works. So have you, I don't think we talked about this last time. Are you composing music for the band or for your own pleasure? Or have you always done that? I, I, I just write songs and I guess if you want to call it, composition you know I, I write the songs i write the chords i write the melodies and everything and yeah i i will say that i do that and uh i mean it, it's fun it's just it's 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 so it's it's a great way to not only express yourself but it's it's so cathartic just mm -hmm. to get this stuff out and to have other people hear it and if they like it it's even that much better and if they don't eh, that's okay who there's no accounting for taste. So, so does the band that you're in play this music that you're writing, or are you all playing, you know, music? Are you covering music in the band? Um, in the beginning, in the beginning, we used to do covers all the time, and and now we just it's all original tunes. And one of the one of my greatest greatest joys is hearing you know, the, the music that I've written come to life. Like there's, there's one song that I'd written. It sounds one way in my head, but then to hear the guys in the band, you know, play it, they put their own takes on, on each part. And sometimes it's awesome. And sometimes I absolutely hate it. And I say, no, that's not how this song goes. You know, I didn't write that, you know, can you guys play what I've written? <laughs> But, you know, I, I totally get it. And, and everything is, is constantly evolving. And uh, they're all fantastic musicians. So it, it all works out. And, you know, I'm, I'm easy. If this is the way you feel it, then absolutely. I'm not going to relegate you to doing things the way that I want you to do them. You know, this is music and it should be shared and it should be enjoyed. So, yeah, put your own spin on it by all means. So have you, I thought I read somewhere that you've been doing a podcast where you're talking with musicians. Is that right? Yes. What, what's the name yes. of the podcast? The name of my podcast, it's called How Music Can Save Your Life. Um, and through this podcast, uh, through the people that I've interviewed, it has just been, I have not only have I learned uh -huh. an incredible amount, not only about music, but about life and about how people see and do things musically. It's just, it's incredible, an incredible opportunity and experience for me. I've talked to conductors, I've talked to 
rock musicians. I've talked to classical musicians. I've talked to jazz musicians. I've talked to composers, you know, fellow violinists. It's, it's amazing just, you know, their insights, uh, into music and, and how music is learned and felt and played and experienced. It's, it's amazing. So, so what, uh, that's where I was going. I, I wondered what you've learned about something that you know a lot about. I mean, you've studied the theory of music and the expression of music for a long time. Um, what have you learned from talking to people who come at music from a, you know, from a different way than you do? Wow. That's probably one of the uh, best questions I think I've ever been asked. It, uh, it is truly, truly amazing that as I listen to fellow musicians and talk to fellow musicians, I learn what I don't know. I truly, truly learn how much I do not know. Um, just That's not humbling. only as far as <laughs> it really is, it really is. And, you know, as a teacher, one of my strongest attributes is the ability to learn. Uh, and I'm constantly learning. You know, I, I listened to Dr. Leslie Dunner from uh, Interlochen, and he gave me his thoughts on conducting and just some of the things that he said. I never even considered. And I'm like, whoa, I am totally going to start doing that <laughs> when I conduct a group. I, it never would have crossed my mind. You know, I, I interviewed Victor Wooten, who is the bass player for um, Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. And, you know, just his stories of how he learned and the way that he listens to music. And he said something I will never, ever forget. He said every single, he, you know, he was asked a question, what was his favorite gig? that he's ever played. And he said, he's not played it yet. He's not played his favorite one yet. <laughs> and I'm just like, Whoa, mind completely blown. You know, and he's, he's, I treat every time I go out and perform, I treat it like it's going to be the last time that I ever play. And I try to give the absolute best show that, that I can give. And I'm like, that is the best philosophy I think I have ever heard. And it is now my philosophy. Just, I, I, I learned so much just by listening and it's, it's amazing. Well, as it happens, I listened to that episode and it was really insightful. Ooh. And um, <laughs> and I wanted to close with uh, Victor Wooten and Bella Fleck playing together a few years ago. But before we hear the music, Brendan, I love hearing you describe what you hear in other people's music. So, um, so give us a little anticipation here. How do you hear you know, such excellent musicians like Bella Fleck, the masters, Bella Fleck and Victor Wooten, what do you listen for in their music? Ooh, I actually listen for the passion, the feeling, what it is that they are experiencing as they are playing. A lot of musicians can play notes. Anyone can play a bunch of notes. That is just technique. But to get the feeling that these musicians are, are giving when they're playing. Am I experiencing what it is that they are experiencing as they play? That's what I listen for. And it takes you to a different place every single time you hear. You can hear the same piece of music a hundred times and it can take you to a hundred different places. And, and that's what I'm constantly listening for. And that is truly, truly a gift. Brendan, it's been a pleasure again to talk to you. Thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. Thank you so much, Carrie. Brendan Slocum's new novel is called Symphony of Secrets. His debut novel was The Violin Conspiracy. And 
Since we're both fans of Bella Fleck and Victor Wooten, that's how we're going to close. Thanks again, Brendan. Thank you. Thank you.